This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. What I want to do is start out with just a little bit of what are the risk issues that we're talking about. And although I'm starting with causes of death, we'll get into the issue that there's disease and there's death and there are different issues. And I'm just comparing men and women to first of all point out that heart disease is the number one cause of death in women as well as men. 28% of all deaths of men and women are heart disease. Then come all the cancers together. And then when we break it down, I'll just focus on women. The next one to focus on is stroke. So we need to recognize that stroke is a very important issue for women's health. It's, it's not um, showing up in the same place for men uh, as it is in such a prominent place for women. And of course, breast cancer is one of the leading uh, causes, and um, whereas for men, it's prostate cancer. Now, to just be complete on this, I had just pulled out the cancers. I do want to point out that something else that's different between men and women is Alzheimer's disease. Women have a much higher proportion of deaths due to Alzheimer's disease, and you can see where that falls into. It it's actually kills more women than breast cancer. Now, when we talk about death, that's one issue, but many of us have to think about um, disease as well. And so what I wanted to just quickly point out is that although lung cancer kills more women than breast cancer, one out of three new cancer diagnoses is breast cancer, uh, even though only 15% of, can of the cancer deaths is breast cancer. Now, something else that I just kind of wanted to bring to your attention, there's a lot of talk about women being protected against heart disease until menopause, and then their protection dies. Um, and just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever heard that? Okay, this was actually something that was really promoting the sales of hormones and promoting the prescriptions of hormones. So what I just like to do is point out to you that when we look at differences between the men and women, these differences start in the first 20 years of life. Twice as many men, are, twice as many baby boys are dying as baby girls. Uh, it's still very low percent, so we don't pay a lot of attention to it. But again, when we go into the 20 to 39 group, again, twice as many uh, men are not making it to 40 as women. And uh, we still have a big uh, difference in men versus female deaths in the 40 to 59 group. So that by the time we get into the 60s, we now have, we're starting to get a little bit closer, but men are still exceeding that. When you actually start to work your way across this, what you see is only three out of four men actually make it to 60, compared to five out of six women, or I'm sorry, six out of seven women. So we have a lot of issues before we get into the 60 range. And when we start to talk about protection, I don't think that we should be focusing on menopause. Everything starts at menopause. Something is starting really early on, and we'll talk about that uh, really just kind of as an educational piece. And when we actually start to talk about 80 plus, a point that you'll see here is that only one third of men make it to 80. 
whereas more than half of all women are making it to 80. So a lot of the health issues that we talk about, sex differences, relate to a whole series of things, and menopause is definitely not the driving factor in this whole picture. Um, that said, this is where we have gotten this idea that women are protected against heart disease. We start to see that there's this divergence between women and men, but I will point out to you that the average age of menopause is 51, and that divergence has occurred back in age 35. So again, this is a myth that we've kind of got into our culture that I'd like to try and correct, and I'll do one last attempt on this correction and uh, present a rather uh, interesting set of slides that this is actually from the UK, but the U US data look very similar. When you look at that difference between men and women, you see slightly different shape curves with this divergence, but if you try and find where is menopause on that divergence, you don't see it. There is no sudden increase in heart disease. It's gradual, it's starting way before we get into the menopause. And that's true if you look at it logarithmically, it's true if you look at it, the ratio of men to women, the menopause uh, phase isn't really changing the shape of this curve in any way whatsoever. So that's one myth that we need to overcome. So what I wanna do is again, show you these differences in age. And first of all, just point out again, just for the purpose of education, that there's a lot of stuff happening just because of our chromosomal differences. XX and XY, there's, these are in every single cell of your body. Every single cell of your body has gender or sex. Actually, it's sex when we talk about that. The other thing I'll just quickly point out is in utero, the male testes is already producing testosterone, which makes a lot of changes in the brain certainly the hypothalamus, how we're gonna regulate our reproductive function. And so a lot is happening before we're even born that's going to have a, something to do with why men and women are different when we start to move on into our, our years. So if we first of all move on into the one to 19, another area of difference is puberty. There's already something set that determines that women are going to be, go through puberty about two years earlier than men. It's gonna make the difference in why men are taller because two more years of slow growth before your bones fuse is going to make a difference in height. So a lot is happening long before menopause. And once we do get the puberty kicking in, then we get a very different body fat distribution. Women have fat in areas that are a little protective from heart disease in that it's the, the subcutaneous fat by and large. Uh, whereas men have mo more of their fat in the intra-abdominal area, which is very different physiologically. So a lot of things that are happening that are so-called secondary sex characteristics are going to drive disease issues, especially cardiovascular disease. When we then move on into the next phase here, uh, we get into what we would call the, the real reproductive years. And um, for women, there's a lot of things that happen in those reproductive years that are gonna change the rest of our lives. Pregnancy, some women get gestational diabetes. That predisposes them to full-blown diabetes later. So that's the diabetes that happens with pregnancy. Some women get preeclampsia, which is a blood pressure that's related to the pregnancy. And that's something that uh, will affect their later impact. So pregnancy and then the postpartum uh, phase, there's lots of debate about does breastfeeding affect breast cancer and things like that. So there's a lot of things that are changing men and changing, well, changing women in particular as we make it through our lifespan. Um, and this is what we would call the premenopausal phase. Now, we used to go from 
premenopause to postmenopause like falling off a cliff. And I can tell you that one of the things that the Women's Health Initiative, which you're going to hear a lot about tonight, really did is it put menopause back on the map. And we started to challenge a lot of our beliefs about menopause. And one of the issues was, is it really this one-year phenomenon? And I'm actually going to pose that we're talking about a 20-year transition. If you really start to look at all the things that are happening to your hormonal patterns and to your hypothalamus and other things. So that when we talk about it, we talk about a perimenopausal phase. I can tell you this is where all the really serious hot flushes and night sweats and all the problems that uh, women start to really uh, freak out about is happening. When we actually get to menopause, that's defined as, as 12 months past your last menstrual cycle. Fairly few women have really terrible symptoms by the time they finally make it to the 12-month phase, but none of the drugs that we test for menopausal management are, the FDA requires that you're a full 12 months past. So in fact, we have not studied women in their full-blown fury and uh, hot flushes and night sweats because the FDA guidelines already have us past the worst of it, and that's something that we'll talk about later. And then after the menopause, we still have two more years that aren't completely resolved. Women still have occasional hot flushes and night sweats. Uh, very few women continue to have these much longer, much past four or five years, but some do. But we call this the early postmenopause. And then what I would now recommend us focusing on is that the 60 to 79 group is what we would really call the postmenopausal age. And by this time, there's actually lots of debate, do men have andropause? And this is because testosterone levels are slowly dropping as opposed to the abrupt, more abrupt change that we have. It's not that abrupt, actually. It's kind of bouncing around a lot. But at any point, uh, this is what's happening between the two sexes at that 20-year gap. And then we get to a point where I think we just have to accept that now we are old. And I can tell you that's always a little bit sensitive. You wonder, does an 80-year-old feel bad if you say they're old? But my, my mom turned 80 and she said, Marsha, I'm old. So I figured if she said that, then I can say that. Now, I'm not going to take you through all of these slides, but what I would like to do is kind of point out that when we talk about the things that are causing death in these different 20-year blocks, in the, the younger women, the 20 to 39 group, uh, by and large, what you see is accidents is the number one cause of death. And in fact, that's even more so for men. The reason why twice as many men are dying in these years is twice as many men are dying from accidents. And then for men, it's homicide and suicide as number two and number three. So they don't even get to the chronic diseases until they've already lost two-thirds of the people that are being lost there. But what women have that's really interesting is cancer actually is the second cause of death already before we're 40 years of age. So that's a big difference because for men, the cancer doesn't even come onto the map at that point. And so we are very aware of um, breast cancer, but I will tell you that no one cancer is accounting for that big change. Now when we move into the next age group, what really does pop up is the breast cancer. Uh, that said, cancers are, total cancers are uh, causing even a, a larger problem than they were in the, the 20 years before. Heart disease is clearly on the map, and then we go into some of the other issues. Um, when we get into the, the 60 to 79 group, we still have cancers exceeding heart disease. Uh, lung cancer already now is exceeding uh, breast cancer, which is here. And when we get into the 80 plus, this is where the vast majority of cardiovascular disease is happening. 
this is where we really, it takes over because more than 50% of women live to be 80. The vast majority of women who are 80 die from heart disease and that's what drives that whole picture of over the course of your lifetime. That isn't what drives your health issues. You're focusing on what you're getting right now at the age you are, not what you're going to die from eventually. So the fact that we were really pushing hormones for preventing heart disease, and most of the heart, the, the, the vast majority of the heart disease is happening out here in the 80s, was really a big problem to put menopausal hormones together with that. And you'll see how that really plays out. That said, I will point out that heart disease is exceeding any individual cancer all the way across this entire board. Uh, and also, I'll quickly point out that here's Alzheimer's disease uh, being a very prominent figure, and stroke is very prominent in the older women. So let's get back to the topic of the night. What is menopause? And I can tell you, we used to just say estrogen drops, and that's kind of menopause. Uh, we now do distinguish um, the premenopause, the, the perimenopause. But first, I'll say that we can talk about two kinds of menopause. Natural menopause, which I don't really know any woman who has never had that experience. I think every woman, eventually, if she starts her menstrual period, she ends her menstrual periods. Now, if it's natural and you still have your uterus, this happens about age 51. Uh, 45 to 56 is kind of the range that is a, a normal menopausal range. The definition is that no bleeding for 12 months. But you can also have um, a surgical menopause, which can happen at any age, and the requirement is that the ovaries are, both ovaries are removed. Removing one ovary still leaves an intact functional ovary, and you wouldn't go through menopause until a natural menopause, though there may be some earlier menopause by taking out that one ovary. Um, not necessarily cause and effect. It might be that the reason one ovary was removed is that there's something wrong, and there's something wrong in the other one but it wasn't uh, really showing up. So we can't really get into cause and effect on exactly what's happening there. Now, when we talk about the postmenopause, um, I will say that for most women, uh, most women do get past that perimenopausal, early postmenopausal phase by about age 56. Uh, maybe we're upping that now that we're getting more population data. We used to only get data from menopause clinics. So these are the women who were having the worst problems, and we weren't getting to see enough of the information from the general population. But most women will report no symptoms once they're past that phase. That said, there are some women who continue to have hot flushes and night sweats. Uh, one of the problems also is vaginal dryness, and we'll get back to that in the next slide. And by the time they're postmenopausal, they have gradual bone loss. But this is really what most people are thinking about. When they say they're menopausal, they are suffering. That's why they're identifying themselves in some way. And the first thing that you can start to find, you start to notice is that your menstrual cycles, maybe you were very regular for 20 years, and all of a sudden, the cycles are getting longer or shorter heavier or lighter. There isn't a one-fits-all. We all just have some differences. You might miss three periods and then start back up again. You might miss five, seven. Um, I've, I've heard too many women that have missed 11 months and then boom, so they, they're kind of not quite there yet, uh, but they clearly are along that pathway. Now, the, the problem are the vasomotor symptoms and the hot flushes and the night sweats. And I can tell you that we don't know very much about the physiology of these problems. Uh, the, the leading theory of the day relates to the fact that all of us 
are trying to regulate our body temperature within a very narrow range. We actually are very good at keeping our body temperature within about 0.4 degrees. And what happens with the, the perimenopausal woman is her range is just shut down. There's no range. For most of us, when you start to get a little bit warm, you vasodilate, which means the blood vessels open up, your cheeks get red, you start to dissipate some heat. Uh, when you start to get your temperature back down, you vasoconstrict, which means the blood vessels shut back down and hold the heat in. Um, what happens with a menopausal woman is that just doesn't work. And so she basically doesn't start to dissipate the heat in time until she's full blown. And she's past that very narrow range that we're trying to keep our temperature. And so she's sweating profusely. Some women shiver profusely because they have the other side of the problem. Uh, and it's not as common, but I know I certainly went through both the shivering and the sweating phase. And so this is something else that many women will have where they're just so cold they cannot uh, function normally and then the next minute they're in a full-blown sweat. So we're not regulating in this fine-tuning mode that we used to, to regulate in. The other big problem is the urogenital and vaginal symptoms where there's thinning of the tissues and the uh, um, glands are not secreting the lubrication. And so this can be very, this can lead to painful intercourse, it can lead to itching, it can lead to uh, bladder infections. Then the other thing is there is a transitory accelerated bone loss. We are already losing bone from age 35. We start to lose the bone. And it's just a slow, gradual loss. But then something happens with menopause where we have kind of a little bit rapid, three-year rapid loss. And then we resume the gradual bone loss. And for men, it's actually true as well. That starting age 35, they start to have slow bone loss. But the difference between men and women is that their bone density is so much higher than women's, that they have a long, longer way to go before you start to really get fractures. But I will tell you, we're now doing a lot of research on osteoporosis in men because men are living long enough that we're now having that problem as well. And the interesting thing is that we don't know very much about what are the risk factors for osteoporosis in men because that's a place where we've been studying women forever and we haven't been getting the information from men. Now I will tell you that a lot of the information that we have now came from a study called the SWAN uh, or SWAN, a study of women across the nation. This was uh, uh, about 3,000 women who were followed for 10 years. And the first thing that happened was when the NIH developed the protocol for this trial, they assumed that if you recruited women who were 42 and not menopausal, that within 10 years most of them would be menopausal and that they would have um, a night, 42 to 52, I'm sorry, 42 to 52, that the vast majority would be menopausal. They went 10 years and only 30% of the women had actually really made it to the other side. And so step one is we really didn't even know when menopause happens or how long it takes for menopause to happen. And just so you understand, this was only published two years ago. So we are talking about a very um, new field of investigation. And I will just point out that there's a great website, uh, or a, a, not a website, this is a, a journal that goes through a very nice uh, symposium that was put on called the State of the Science for Menopause from the National Institutes of Aging. And you can actually download that entire journal issue uh, if you're interested. So when we start to look at the issue about hormones and heart disease, uh, the sources of evidence 
by and large, were these epidemiological studies. We also had animal models. When you actually go back and look at this, many people feel that, well, I've got the hard science backing me because my animal model. But when you challenge those animal models, what you see is instead of having anything that's even closely related to a menopausal woman, you're talking about six-week-old rats. You're talking about, at oldest, 35-year-old monkeys, equivalent to us. So we don't have any animal models of the menopausal woman. The other thing that we did have, however, were these surrogate markers like HDL cholesterol. And I can tell you that the evidence is very strong that estrogen raises HDL cholesterol. The problem is we are kind of putting all of our eggs in that basket, like that means we're going to prevent heart disease. Um, we had clinical studies looking at angiographic data. Um, we also had the bone mineral density, but we didn't have any hard outcomes. We did not have any data that actually said if I put this woman on estrogen, she will get less heart disease or, or uh, fewer fractures. Uh, and so we were at a point where the medical community had been educated, very heavily educated, to feel that they should be putting women on estrogen to prevent heart disease. And you can look back at the old uh, continuing medical education programs. The risks and benefits were kind of always posed as heart disease is the leading cause of death in women, estrogen prevents heart disease, you should put women on estrogen. And this was being said uh, really very broadly. And a lot of older women were actually being encouraged to go on, even though they didn't have any symptoms. So the problem that we have is we were using this drug to prevent diseases of aging when, in fact, its FDA approval was for menopausal management. And we'll be getting into the menopausal management part of this soon enough. But the first trial to actually take this on was the HERS trial. Now, HERS was a trial of women with heart disease. So everybody had to have heart disease, and this was also a trial of women with a uterus, and the design was estrogen and progestin versus placebo. And most of these women uh, had not been on hormones in the past, didn't understand why their cardiologist wanted to put them on estrogen, and the reason that their cardiologist wanted to do this was that <clears throat> two years before these data were published, the American College of Cardiology came out with guidelines that said any woman who's had a heart attack should be put on estrogen to prevent the next heart attack without any clinical data. And what HERS pointed out that was kind of, first of all, it did show HDL going up and LDL going down. So the good cholesterol went up, the bad cholesterol went down, but also the fats in the blood, the triglycerides went up, which we wouldn't see as a good thing. But what was a real shock to a lot of people was that over the, the course of the four years of the trial, there turned out to be no difference, no evidence of benefit. And in fact, in the first year, there were significantly more heart attacks in the women who went on the active hormone. So this was a real shock to people. There were also significantly more blood clots in the lungs and the legs. Uh, this was something that we had seen with oral contraceptives at high dose, but people didn't expect to see that with menopausal hormones. And so we basically had a, a situation where it was very clear that you should not put women who are about to have a heart attack on these hormones because you actually increase the likelihood that they're going to have that event. So that was a big shock. Lots of people didn't like those data. There was a lot of criticism for the HERS trial. This is also one that we did here at Stanford. So we were one of the 20 clinics that did the study. And I can tell you, I, I was the co-principal investigator on that. I had 80-year-old women calling me and saying, I'm bleeding. 
why am I bleeding? It's like, well, if you go on estrogen and progestin, your uterus is going to start to bleed again. Will I get pregnant? I mean, they were very confused about what was going on. And so this was a, a kind of a, you know, they didn't really see that the quality of their lives were improved. But they also weren't symptomatic women, so that was a problem with the issue. That said, I can tell you there was a lot of criticism of the study, but then in the next two or three years, a whole series of studies that were not as good endpoints as actual heart attack, which hers had, but they were angiographic evidence, looking at whether you really saw evidence of progression in, of disease. There, the stroke study was looking at whether you'd actually have a stroke, another stroke. Uh, and so we had a series of studies that had different kind of endpoints. They used different estrogens. It wasn't just Premarin. Uh, there were pure transdermal estradiol was studied, uh, estradiol as, uh, which comes actually from a yam, so it's a plant-based product, not animal. Lots of other things were studied, and over and over again, the evidence for women with heart disease was no benefit or early harm. And so once they had this corroboration, everybody said, hey, if a woman is about to have a heart attack, you don't put her on estrogen and progestin. But the question was, well, what about the rest of women. And so there was this puzzle to be solved. And the puzzle to be solved already had one part of the question, which was, no, not for secondary prevention. If you've had a heart attack, estrogen seems to precipitate uh, an event or at least not help you in any way. The question was, is it still the right thing to do to prevent the first heart attack? We also didn't know very much about stroke. That was bouncing all over the place in the epidemiological literature. We did expect that it would be increasing blood clots. We did expect that it would be preventing fractures. Breast cancer was really an unknown, but the general feeling was that this wasn't a good thing. And uh, also memory, there were more and more studies coming out saying that estrogen users would get less dementia and less Alzheimer's disease, to the point where this was also another marketing tactic that was being used where women were being encouraged to go on this because we're all afraid of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And gallbladder disease was also. So we had a lot of questions going into the Women's Health Initiative. Now, there are some very nice websites to just point out, uh, to your, bring to your attention, where you can get more information. We publish uh, lay articles. When, when a big article comes out, we try and put it into a place for the public to read. It wasn't just a hormone study. There was a major diet study and a calcium study. I will mention the calcium study at the end of my talk, but I won't get into the diet study tonight. Um, this study was done at 40 clinical centers across the United States, 10 of whom had the specific mission of bringing minority women into the trial so that we could really have a good representation of the US population. And the question was, does estrogen or estrogen and progestin actually prevent heart disease? And does it really increase breast cancer? And does it really prevent fractures? Because we only had data on bone mineral density. We did not have trial data on fractures. And I think what was really unique about the Women's Health Initiative is we recognized that estrogen affects so many tissues in your body that to focus on one outcome is missing the fact that once you put that pill in your mouth, it's going everywhere. And it's going to affect lots of things. And unless we really understand the overall picture, we haven't really done a very good service to the woman who's taking that pill. So based on whether a woman had a, a hysterectomy or not, if she had a hysterectomy, so no uterus, she would be put in the estrogen-only trial, which was a trial of conjugated equine estrogen, Premarin, versus placebo. 
If she had her uterus, she'd get the same estrogen with a daily progestin in the form of hydroxyprogesterone acetate or placebo, and this is PremPro. So these are really the most widely prescribed estrogen and estrogen progestin combination. Even now, these are the most widely used estrogen and estrogen progestin. And so essentially we had two trials, a trial of E plus P or estrogen and progestin, a trial of estrogen only, looking at heart disease as the primary endpoint, but also focusing on stroke and blood clots in the lungs and the legs, cancers, fractures, and then I'll tell you about an ancillary study of older women on memory. The other goals that we had were uh, ethnic goals. And what we were aiming for was to get 20% of the hormone study as women of color. We weren't paying very much attention to the two different trials, the estrogen only and estrogen and progestin. And what came out once we had all the data was the recognition that because we never shut the younger cells down to women of color, we ended up with a huge percent of women in their 50s that were in fact women of color uh, and what we have particularly is African-American, 15% of the estrogen-only study was African-American, and then a large proportion were also um, Hispanic and, and Asian Pacific Islanders, because it turns out that there's a really different way of, of dealing with hysterectomy in this country, that black women get hysterectomies at earlier ages than white women. And so this is something that by the time all is said and done, I think the numbers are equal, but we started to see other kinds of issues that relate to women's health. Now to come back to what the study was really about, however, it was testing the hypotheses. And this is kind of a schematic way of looking at what we called the balance. If you're going to randomly assign someone to placebo or to an active hormone, you'd like to feel that the risks and benefits are reasonably balanced for them. But we have this hypothesis that estrogen would, with or without progestin, would dramatically benefit heart disease, and we anticipated risk for breast cancer. As I said, the stroke data were bouncing around. We didn't know what to expect. We did expect the blood clots, and we did expect fewer fractures. And the rules were set up for the monitoring of the trial that if things tipped this way, we would stop for benefit. If things tipped this way, we would stop for harm. And the Data Safety Monitoring Board, which is a standard monitoring board in trials like this, they can look at the data. The investigators cannot and the women cannot, but their job is to be sure that the participants are safe. They were monitoring three separate cardiovascular outcomes, heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots in the lungs. They were monitoring um, colorectal cancer and breast cancer, but also for women with a uterus, the endometrial cancer the hip fractures in particular, and death from other diseases. And what was created was something called a global index, which put the first event together. And the rule was for any one of these to have much impact on whether you started the, stopped the trial or not, it had to be consistent with a global index. So if it was breast cancer, you'd have to have a picture of harm. If it was the heart disease, uh, hypothesis was right, we'd have to have a global index showing that, yeah, overall women are better off. So what happened for the estrogen and progestin trial, and it's very important to realize that we have to distinguish between women with a uterus and women with a hysterectomy. The women with a uterus were taking estrogen and progestin, and what happened was three years ahead of the planned stop date, the breast cancer uh, was, breast cancer was increased above the pre-specified stopping rule. Now that would not have stopped the trial, 
um, if everything else was fine, because by that time we already had seen enough decrease in hip fractures and colorectal cancer that these two balance each other out. The benefits here uh, basically could, outwit, could balance out the risk there, but the problem was that the whole hypothesis was wrong. Not only did we see uh, no benefit, but at that initial phase, there were more heart attacks, more strokes, and then the blood clots that we had already anticipated. And so the overall picture was one of harm relative to benefit. And we were putting women on this who had no menopausal symptoms. We were putting women on this who were older women. And so this was the real public health issue. It wasn't about menopause. It was about why are we using this hormone as the way to prevent aging when it's actually not a good thing. Now, the other quick thing that I want to point out on the estrogen and progestin trial was we couldn't really see this breast cancer until the fifth year, and then it just kind of came out of nowhere. And that's because what we've actually uh, hypothesized, and we have a little bit of data to support it, is that something about the hormones, estrogen and progestin in particular, because you have estrogen and progestin receptors in the breast, is you get dense breasts and you can't see a cancer. So the hypothesis was if this is really a case where they're hiding, those cancers are hiding, we should see bigger tumors when we finally detect them. And in fact, we did see that. So for the estrogen and progestin story, I think it's pretty much a story of um, it's not a good thing. Now, in terms of what about by age, this is the estrogen and progestin trial, first of all, showing you these 10-year groupings and pointing out that whether we're in our 50s, 60s, or 70s, adding the estrogen and progestin clearly increases our risk for breast cancer. That said, the 50-year-old woman is at lower risk than the 70-year-old woman. So when you start to figure out what about my absolute risk, the absolute risk is probably small enough that we shouldn't be saying this is a dangerous drug. We're saying there's probably some safety profile there for a short period of time, but we basically can't say this is a healthy thing to do. And that's just what you have to take into account. And that's true of all medications. Aspirin has its risks as well. But just to point out that it was 20% increase, 22% increase by all of these age groups. And then the other one I want to point out is that when we look at our uh, obesity status, uh, especially in the normal weight and overweight women, you see that there is this increase by going on the estrogen and progestin. It's actually the case that by the time we're talking about the obese woman, the obese woman's risk for breast cancer is substantially higher, just look at the placebo group, than the normal weight and overweight woman. So adding the estrogen and progestin probably doesn't increase that risk even more. You're already at a high risk. So the issue here is this is why we really try and encourage women to not gain more weight if they can help it. And if they can lose it, that would be even better. Now, as I said, this was a huge story, got lots of press. I'm actually in this Newsweek. I was interviewed in that Newsweek. But they really got the message wrong. It was all of these menopausal women saying, you can't do this to me. I'm suffering terribly. And so as I said, that really put menopause on the map. And that was a good thing, because we needed to study this natural process of women. Uh, the other thing that happened with that is uh, from that 1995 date that I showed you before, uh, at that point, an estrogen progestin pill came out as a one pill thing. It didn't exist before that. That's Prempro. And sales just rose dramatically because women liked a one pill approach. And when WHI came down, they didn't like it anymore. So 
This was basically, sh this showed up on Wall Street the next day that the study came out. This was a huge uh, billion dollar industry that, had, that, had an imp that was impacted. And it was particularly impacted on the estrogen and progestin, so women were recognizing that we had not yet published the estrogen only trial, but people were saying hormones. We didn't have the data yet for women with a hysterectomy. So that basically um, will be coming next. But I will point out that before we had this trial data come out, the FDA required that all the package inserts be uh, changed to have a black box warning, which is considered a major thing, to state very clearly that estrogens and progestins should not be used to prevent heart disease. And if you're gonna go on them, you should go on the lowest dose that you can consistent with what you're trying to do, which is get rid of your hot flushes or take care of other problems, and for the shortest duration possible, even though we didn't have very good data on that. So when the estrogen-only trial came out, it was also stopped early, but not by the Data Safety Monitoring Board. It was stopped by the NIH. They said, you know, enough, all right. Let's go ahead and get these data out there. The thing that they were very concerned about was a significant increase in stroke with estrogen-only. There was a benefit the same reduction in hip fracture, so the bone story is very consistent. Um, there wasn't actually an increase in breast cancer, it tended to be decreased. Uh, there wasn't a significant increase in the blood clots, so that when you look at the overall picture, it was neutral. And it wasn't a case where women should be afraid to be on these pills. That said, I'm gonna say a few more things. First thing I'm gonna say is that when we look at the estrogen-only cohort, the women with a hysterectomy, what I've highlighted here in white are the, the absolute rates for the placebo group. To just point out that this is giving us a very good sense of their risk for a heart attack, and what you see is their risk for a heart attack is twice that of the estrogen and progestin group. Their risk for a stroke is substantially higher. Their risk for blood clots is substantially higher. And we actually saw this in the observational study too. Whatever is resulting in a hysterectomy is associated with a greater risk for cardiovascular disease. It's not cause and effect. We can't say that, but we do know that women who have had a hysterectomy, for whatever reason, as a group, are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease, whereas their risk for bre breast cancer doesn't seem to be much different, nor their risk for colorectal cancer, maybe a little bit with respect to hip fractures. So we can't say that estrogen and progestin are different from estrogen. We have to recognize that we studied estrogen in one kind of woman and estrogen and progestin in another. That said, you either have a hysterectomy or you don't, so you fall in those categories. Now, you're gonna see a few of these slides. I am sorry if you hate bar graphs, but I'm gonna just try and make the major points along the way. First of all, the two trials differed in some ways. In the case of estrogen and progestin, we have a clear increase this wasn't quite significant, actually, when we had all the data in, but it was borderline. But what you see, again, is the placebo group at a much lower rate than the placebo group here. So although this is not different, we kind of have to realize that these women were at higher risk for a heart attack with or without the hormones, and that should be our focus, is reducing their risk for heart disease, not whether it's you know, what to do about the hormones. Now, where there's a lot of debate now, and you're going to hear this, in the next two years, this debate's not going away, is that younger women may benefit and older women are the ones that are really at risk. Now I can tell you that in the estrogen and progestin trial, what you see is that younger women are at lower absolute risk. So look at the placebo group again in yellow. 
So the, by the time we're talking about a 70-year-old, 70 70 to 79-year-old woman, she's at much greater risk for a heart attack than is a 50-year-old woman. But the estrogen and progestin increased that woman's, the 50-year-old woman, 50 to 59-year-old woman's risk, uh, really not much different from what happened along the way. So for estrogen and progestin, women with a uterus, those hormones increase your risk of having a heart attack, but your risk is low. So you have some safety factor. If, in fact, you're at very low risk for heart disease, then you can feel maybe this is safe. But if you're at high risk, I don't care what age you are, you should recognize that it's not something that you want to do. And that's the more important thing is what is your risk before you say, okay, what happens if I increase it by 25%? But where the debate is now going is in the estrogen-only arm. In the estrogen-only arm, the publication that came out honed in on the fact that in this group of women, 50 to 59, with a hysterectomy, there were fewer heart attacks in the women that went on estrogen. Now, in fact, we do something called a test for interaction of treatment by age, which was not significant. And the fact that it even looked like it was close to significance, we would want this to be below 0.05, was not just driven by the, the women having fewer on the 50s. It was driven also by the fact that women in the 70s were having more heart attacks. And that's what drove that interaction. But this is not a significant effect, and yet it's being marketed. And what you have to recognize is that we're talking about a billion-dollar industry that's trying to reassure you that there's no problem. And I think that what we have to realize is if you have hot flushes and night sweats that you can't solve or you can't deal with, that is a problem. And that's why these hormones exist. That's why these hormones are approved by the FDA. But to then start to say, I'm going to go back to the idea that I can prevent heart disease is really a mistake. And I can tell you that the director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute called me today because of her concern about the papers that are coming out that are pushing this idea and feels very strongly that the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute does not want us to reverse and go back where we were and start to encourage women to think that they could prevent heart disease with hormones. We have other things we should do. Now, again, I made the point that we have um, differences by ethnic group, and these differences really show up when you look within these cells. So buried in those data of the 50 women in their 50s, women in their 60s, women in their 70s, is the fact that one-third of the women in the estrogen-only trial in their 50s are women of color, and they may have some issues that we need to look at. Maybe there are some genetic issues with respect to how hormones affect them. We need to understand this before we start saying, okay, the data for women in their 50s applies to everybody. We don't really understand those data. And you can see that when we're comparing it then with women in their 70s, where only 14% of the women are women of color, we're really talking about three separate, very separate groups and trying to come up with this idea that we understand the story. So, I probably confused you completely, and that's okay, because what you should understand is it's not a simple story. And we should not think that we now have data to say that younger women are benefiting by taking hormones. The one that's really different, though, is cancer. So I want to say two things about the cancer data. Um, first of all, it was significantly increased with estrogen and progestin, and I am willing to bet that progestin adds to the problem. In terms of the estrogen only, in, a, in the seven years that we followed the women, we could not demonstrate that estrogen actually increases breast cancer in women with a hysterectomy. Um, and in fact, unlike the estrogen and progestin trial, 
we weren't seeing any evidence of this being buried in the dust. It was really clearly separating that there were fewer breast cancers coming out in the women on the estrogen versus the, estro versus the placebo. The problem is, and this is a very complicated slide and I apologize, but I'm gonna talk you through it as best I can. When we talk about risk for breast cancer, we use something called the Gale model. In the Gale model, we actually broke the groups into three groups, and this would be considered a group at high risk, the, the 1.75 for the Gale model. Uh, and this group would be considered low risk, and the others are in the middle. And what we actually saw was the women who had reduced breast cancer in the estrogen trial were the women who started out with low risk to begin with. So if you have high risk for breast cancer, don't be reassured by the overall finding of, re of no increased risk. Realize that, again, we need to tailor our messages to your risk factors. And when we look at this overall picture that we talked about, the global index, we actually see a significant worsening of your overall health status for the estrogen and progestin, but a neutral picture. So those of you with a hysterectomy should know that we do not have overwhelming data from WHI to say that estrogen is particularly dangerous to your health unless you're at high risk for stroke, and that's the main issue. Now the last point I'm gonna make on this is uh, we did do an ancillary study of older women for dementia. Now, there is a lot of interest in this window of opportunity concept that if you started the estrogen at the time of menopause, you could pre protect your brain from later problems. Also, when you're trying to do these studies, you have to have a group of people that are at risk for the disease so that you see it and you can see whether there's a difference. So we went for women 65 and over. Uh, it actually turned out that nearly 3,000 women in the estrogen-only trial participated and over 4,500 in the estrogen and progestin trial. These are huge trials. Uh, they were meant to go for seven years, but because the other trials were stopped, they had to be stopped prematurely as well. And the bottom line was where we had hypothesized benefit, what we saw was a 105% increase in uh, probable dementia for women who went on the estrogen and progestin. We didn't get a significant increase in the estrogen only, but it was clearly in that direction, and we also had mild cognitive impairment. Not significant, but when you put these two pieces together, in fact, when you put this whole picture together, it's really one of harm. It's not one of benefit for uh, probable dementia. Now, there's a lot of interest in, is this really Alzheimer's disease? Is this mini strokes? Uh, we actually just finished a brain MRI study to try and get after that question, and hopefully we'll be publishing that soon. But to just kind of sum it up, in case I've confused you, the trials were very consistent in showing no benefit for heart disease estrogen or estrogen and progestin. The difference is E plus P, there was the early harm. The stroke, clearly harmful in both trials. Uh, fractures, clearly beneficial. Dementia, harmful. Where the trials differed was the breast cancer, where we clearly saw increased breast cancer with estrogen and progestin, and we did not see that in estrogen only for the whole population, but for women at high risk, their risk actually was increased. And then the last quick point is, lots of women were being put on estrogen to prevent incontinence, and in this trial we demonstrated both stress incontinence and urge incontinence were significantly increased by going on the E plus P or the E alone. Um, actually, E plus P and urge wasn't significant, but this one was. So three out of the four different groups. So incontinence was also increased. So it was a total myth 
that we were getting that this was going to be good for us. And to basically um, bring this to conclusion, I feel that we solved the puzzle. We basically have good evidence that it's not going to prevent heart disease, that it is going to increase stroke, that it, it uh, is going to increase blood clots, it's going to be beneficial to bones if that's your main issue. The breast cancer issue I think is still a lot of debate about what to do about that. Uh, dementias probably increased risk. We also saw gallbladder increase in incontinence. So basically, a lot of women stopped um, their hormones after WHI, and the Kaiser study actually looked at this. Uh, they basically looked at how many women tried to stop and what it was about stopping and why they started, why they went back on. And the women who couldn't tolerate being off did go back on because they had hot flushes worse than they had had at the time of menopause. And they had a lot of mood swings and vaginal dryness. Um, and so uh, this was basically their main reason for going back on. That said, it's actually the case that when we look at who restarted, it was about uh, one out of four women found that once they had been on hormones for a while and they stopped, they really could not tolerate being off the hormones. So three out of four did pretty well and I think that that's really a, a piece of information we didn't know. Who knew that you were going to have all these women being really uh, miserable and in trouble? But I will tell you that from our own data, we're pretty, we're pretty convinced, but we don't have like a good way to prove it, that if you don't go on at all, you probably are better off in the long run. Because going on, you actually develop kind of a dependence, and coming off is worse. And many women said they never had a hot flush in their life, until they got randomly assigned to our hormones, then they came off and here they are 80 years old needing to be on hormones. So this is something where we need to be very careful about encouraging women to go on it uh, and, and go on a dose that's, that's too high. Now, um, I will just quickly tell you that in terms of what the, it's prescribed for, current labeling is clearly that it's about menopausal symptoms. Uh, whether we're talking about the vasomotor, the hot flushes and night sweats, or the, the vaginal problems. Uh, it is the case that the guidance is that if you're prescribing solely for the vaginal dryness and those issues, you should consider a topical. Um, and then the third uh, and only other uh, indication is for the prevention of osteoporosis. That said, the recommendation actually goes into detail to say, after you've considered other forms of treatment. And so here are the other forms of treatment that you would consider, uh, Relax, Avista, Spasimax, Actinel. So the, that's basically the way the guidance comes. And the guidance also is for starting at 0.3 milligrams as opposed to the former 0.6. Now this is kind of interesting because this is kind of the estrogen therapy road to Shangri-La. Um, this is where we are now. Estrogen should be used only for vasomotor symptoms and vaginal atrophy, the low, lowest dose, shortest amount of time. It may trigger high blood pressure uh, and strokes and blood clots. Um, if you have that kind of history, you're recommended not to do it. Uh, there may be safer ways to deal with osteoporosis, and you are cautioned that it's your own responsibility. I want to point out this was in Consumer Reports, 1976. So we came right back around where we started 30 years ago. I will tell you that the recommendation is for lower doses, shorter times. Um, other groups of administration, skin and, and vagina, may be considered. 
Um, the bioidentical natural hormones, if you didn't see the Larry King show last night, Susan Summers has published a book about how bioidentical hormones have, are keeping her young. She's smearing it on one thigh and her husband's smearing on DHEA on his thigh, so they're having a very nice sex life and talking about on the Larry King show. But at any rate, the bioidentical hormones is what she's promoting, and so I, I will, um, I'll show you a little bit more about that. But in terms of the practical measures, don't laugh at these, they work. There's actually some data that paced respirations to just try and get back in control. So doing some yoga-like breathing, um, there is some good trial data on that. Dressing in layers, avoiding turtlenecks. I can tell you, you can see that I'm past it now. I put them away for two years. I wasn't wearing a turtleneck for two years. Um, alcohol, spicy foods, they definitely bring it on. There's lots of information. So there are ways that you can kind of prevent this from happening. Um, and in it be before you have to go all the way to estrogens. In terms of complementary um, forms, the clinical trial data has not been very helpful, in or hopeful, I guess is the right word. These things are not doing better than placebo. That said, one of the problems is that all of these are being put to the test of the FDA that you only study women who are 12 months past that last menstrual cycle, whereas the worst hot flushes are women who are short or shy of that 12 months. So it may work for the first three or four months. I, I, we don't have any data to say that. So I'm going to basically, uh, I will tell you that when we talk about bioidentical hormones, there seem to be multiple definitions around, but this is kind of the standard definition is that these are compounded uh, recipes of certain steroids that can include estrone, estradiol, estriol. These are three different kinds of estrogens. Um, dehydry, epiandrosterone, which is really an androgen, progesterone, pregnenolone, testosterone, and it's compounded supposedly to be tailored to you. And I'm going to conclude by acknowledging that millions of women want to know how to get through this transition. It's not fun. I think many of you are here because you are hoping that I've got the answer for you. Um, ice water works really well for me. But at any rate, um, what we don't have are side-by-side -side comparisons. So anyone who says, is this better than that? There's very few physicians that can answer that question because we don't have the studies. That's not something that pharmaceutical companies do very quickly, is compare a head-to-head -head because who, you know, it's a risk and that's a dangerous thing. So we have that problem. We don't have much data on the bioidenticals. Um, when we talk about the criteria, I think that we're missing the women who are the most symptomatic because of the rules. And we really don't have very good information on this uh, stopping in shortest duration. Now, I do, this is kind of a little bit off the subject, but I think this is my only opportunity to bring this information to you. I want you to know that we also did a calcium trial in the WHI. Women had to be in the hormone trial or the diet trial to get into the calcium trial, and they were basically assigned to 1,000 milligrams of calcium carbonate and 400 international units of vitamin D uh, for a seven-year period versus placebo. And in terms of what's recommended, I will tell you right off the bat, the outcome of WHI for calcium did not change recommendations. So these are still the recommendations to get 1,200 milligrams a day of calcium kind of across this age group. Uh, more vitamin D if you're getting into the 70 plus group. But the reason why the study was done is that fewer than 5% of American women actually meet these guidelines and the, 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 the classic the, the standard intake of calcium is only 700 milligrams. 
That said, it turned out that the WHI cohort was clearly the wrong cohort, the wrong group of women to ask this question because one-third of them were already exceeding the criteria compared to the 5% in the population. Another 25% uh, were really not too low, and it was really only a small percent that really needed to be tested on this question. And so it wasn't surprising that it didn't come out as a significant decrease in hip fractures. That said, when we did a subgroup of analysis of women who were 60 and over, they actually did have a 21% decrease in hip fractures. And so we are recommending that, at least for women 60 and over, we think the trial data support that. I can't say that we have any data from WHI to support the use of the, the daily intake of calcium in women in their 50s. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.